It's All Relative is podcasting again with a new case about crime and the family. We are, yet again, in the 1990s, but this case really explores what the concept of family really means. Looking at who do we love, who do we have a responsibility for, and who should we trust. Remember, listeners, this podcast deals with some raw topics and can include rather colorful language. Listener discretion is advised. Tupac himself will get us ready to hear this tale, and I will still be here on the other side. When I was sick as a little kid To keep me happy there's no limit to the things you did And all my childhood memories Are full of all the sweet things you did for me And even though I act crazy I gotta thank the Lord that you made me There are no words that can express how I feel You never kept a secret, always stayed real And I appreciate how you raised me And all the extra love that you gave me I wish I could take the pain 1992 was the year for conservatives in America to denounce gangster rap. N.W.A. had released Straight Outta Compton in 1998, making their song Fuck the Police an instant hit. Ice-T had more recently released Cop Killer and less overtly named raps like Soldier Story and Get the Fuck Outta Dodge talk about police corruption, suspicion, and violence. Both Dan Quayle and George H.W. Bush had publicly defamed not just the rappers who make these songs, but Time Warner, the parent company who backed the record companies putting these songs out into the world. Bush had actually called such songs sick, and Quayle had told the news media that there was absolutely no reason for a record like this to be published by a responsible corporation. That quote is from the 1992 LA Times article by John Broder. These motherfuckers. The Rodney King riots were that same year. Somehow, these out-of-touch shitheads have completely missed the point. And when you are that far off the mark, it is really hard to find a way to push your lunk-ass head in the right direction. Honestly, living in the city that only recently went through its own riots, this time for the murder of George Floyd, It is terrifying that they still haven't gotten it. It is really hard to give this story a beginning, because every step is the result of something that came before. Granted, that's true for most things, but this story seems like one that would never have happened if only this or that wouldn't have happened. September 7th, 1996, 25-year-old Tupac Amaru Shakur was shot in a drive-by. Tupac held on for almost a week, but six days later he succumbed to his injuries. Six months later, on March 9, 1997, 24-year-old Christopher George Latour Wallace, also known as Biggie Smalls or the Notorious B.I.G., was also shot in a drive-by. His wounds killed him instantly. Recently, there has been a spate of documentaries and books about the life and death of these two men. Most of these newer stories treat the two men as what they were, two individuals who had their own character and a distinctive path. At the time of their deaths, however, mainly driven by the news and advertising media, 
the wider world only viewed Tupac and Biggie as two sides of the same coin. Two sides which had raced for superiority in an up-and-coming genre, who hated one another with a passion, and who died in a way which could only be expected given the company they kept. The truth, as if we can ever get to a pure form of that, the truth is actually infinitely more complicated, more interesting, and more individualized than was publicly known at the time. The story of these men definitely begins before they were even a glimmer in their mother's eye. And it does, really, begin with the two women who were their mothers, Afini Shakur and Valetta Wallace. Afini started life in post-World War II North Carolina. Not only did she suffer from the Jim Crow South, she also never knew if she would wake up one morning or come home from school one day to find that her father had murdered her mother and shoved the body under Afini's bed. It wasn't until Afini was 12 that her mother finally found the courage to move herself and her two girls away from her husband's abuse up to New York. While Afini may have hoped things would be different in New York, many things were still the same. Anyone who knows New York City knows the city is more a conglomerate of neighborhoods. While much of the South was forcibly busing students from one school district to another, New York was holding off, trying to minimize unrest by people staunchly loyal to their neighborhood. New York school districts are still some of the most segregated in the country. Afini's mother was able to find a place to live in the Bronx, in a white woman's apartment. I'm not sure if that means she was sharing, subletting, or just in a place where a white, not black, woman would live. New York was, often still is, very segregated by cultural identity. It mattered whether you were Italian or Irish or Ukrainian. While some of these things mattered in 1959 North Carolina, the biggest issue was whether you were black or white. It may have been important to her Bronx neighbors if your ancestors were from Sicily or Tuscany, but Afini still saw them making fun of her because it was obvious her ancestors were from Africa. Before they left North Carolina, Afini, who was given the name Alice at birth, was a witness to the Battle of Hayes Pond. In 1958, the Lumbee Indian tribe showed up at a Klan rally and basically kicked Klan asses. This was the first time Afini realized she didn't have to just accept the hate and abuse railed at her every day, and she took this knowledge with her to New York. From Tupac Shakur, the authorized biography, quote, when one schoolmate said she looked like something from outer space, she resisted in the way she knew how. I kicked his ass, she recalled. All I wanted to do is fight, fight back. I thought fighting was the way to compensate for my inadequacies, end quote. Afini's anger only burned brighter. Her school counselor recognized something in her and encouraged her to apply to the High School of Performing Arts, the one from fame. Look it up, people. This school was elite and Afini was accepted, but the word elite also meant that her classmates were rich and influential, a place she felt she could never be. Quoting again, A lot of the kids that went to PA were coming out of private school, she recalled. They came to school in limos. I hated them with a passion. I'd get high off Thunderbird wine before school even started just to deal with my hatred of them. The unfairness fueled her anger, but she had no outlet for it. Her short fuse paved the way to drinking and drug use as she fought her way through New York. She fought boys and girls alike. Ultimately, Alice dropped out of PA and soon after joined the Disciple Debs, 
an offshoot of the notorious New York Disciples Boys Gang. It was a way to belong, to channel her overwhelming feelings of inadequacy, end quote. I am so sorry, Afini, but hearing about your life immediately brings Diary of a Mad Black Woman to the front of my mind. And look, she had every reason to be angry. She'd been met by hatred, derision, and pain for much of her young life. She lacked any guidance on how to deal with the trauma and no outlook of her world ever going to be better. She did somehow stumble into the faith and culture of the Yoruba peoples of West Africa and she began to participate in activities with the emigre population in New York. This helped her realize that there were people you could count on, and she began to allow herself to trust people. She met a man who introduced her to the Nation of Islam, and from there to the Black Panthers. By this point, she was going by Afini, not Alice. She was enthralled by the idealism. For those of you who are thinking, wait, Chadwick Boseman had friends in the 60s? The Black Panthers were a political group whose main goal was to secure and ensure the humanity of black people in the U.S. Me? I'm appalled that we even need such a thing, but I'm also acutely aware that it was needed. And, need I say, Tyree Nichols people, we still need it. Because it is an important part of Tupac's story, I'm going to go further into the Panthers. This topic is very involved, so I'm going to miss a lot. There's a lot of information out there if this interests you and you want more. I recommend the Behind the Bastards podcast. They have a great two-parter from about three years ago. Behind the Bastards is, in many ways, a satire. If you're not aware of this, you might get a bit weirded out by it, so keep that in mind. As an additional aside, the Behind the Bastards pod also has an amazing treatment of the founding of the KKK. Please go listen. It's fucking hilarious. The Panther Party grew out of the frustration American blacks felt in their effort to be seen and treated as Americans. Most of the efforts to gain the right to be people were peaceful. Marches, sit-ins, refusing to go to the back of the bus. Many of these peaceful protests were met with violence, like beyond overreaction violence. At this time, many blacks decided to become more aggressive in securing their rights. The Black Panthers were originally called the Black Panthers for self-defense. They started carrying weapons so that when they were attacked for simply existing, they could protect themselves. Before you judge them negatively, remember, just trying to vote, which was their legal right by this point, could get a black person killed. The media, of course, portrayed the Panther Party in the worst light possible and highlighted anything to suggest that the group was violent and out to kill white people. The Panthers, however, were about bettering the lives of blacks in America. They operated on the 10-point program, the constitution of the party, if you will. These points are 1. Freedom and power to determine the destiny of our community. 2. Full employment for our people. 3. End to the robbery by capitalists of our community. 4. Decent housing fit for the shelter of human beings. Five. Education that teaches our true history and our role in the present-day society. 6. We want all black men to be exempt from military service. 7. An immediate end to police brutality and murder of black people. 8. Freedom for all blacks held in prisons and jails because they have not had a fair trial. 9. Any and all jury trials to be performed with a jury of their peers. 
and 10, land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace. Each of these points comes with a more in-depth description, and you can read them on your own. You can find this in several different places on the interwebs. I got this from Marxist.org. I'm not saying that all members of the Panther Party were saints, but the party at its core was not set up to be subversive, to overthrow the U.S. government, or to terrorize white people. They just wanted what any human being wanted. They created many programs to help others, school breakfast programs being one of the most famous. But between the media and J. Edgar Hoover, the Panthers were viewed as a terrifying group that needed to be squashed like a bug. Hoover signed off on a concerted effort to defame and eliminate the Black Panther Party. Part of this campaign involved undercover officers in local Panther chapters. Afeni's chapter was no different. In the early hours of April 2, 1969, her apartment was raided. 21 total members of the Panther Party were charged that day, but only 13 went to trial. Afeni was charged with conspiracy to blow up a commuter railroad's right-of-way, the Bronx Botanical Gardens, and five department stores, Abercrombie & Fitch, Macy's, Alexander's, Corvette's, and Bloomingdale's. It took an eight-month, highly publicized trial and roughly two years in all, but all 13 were acquitted on all charges. Afeni actually represented herself at trial, and she did it pregnant. Afeni didn't spend all of those two years incarcerated, but she did spend much of it in the woman's house of detention. And again, I must mention that our legal system is predicated on the concept that people are innocent until proven guilty. How then do we justify imprisoning someone under the conditions in which Afeni was kept? Quote, the space was cramped, housing up to 600 female prisoners in an area designed to hold 400. Prisoners often reported finding worms and cockroaches in their food and dead mice in the showers. Two of the men on trial tried to flee while out on bail, and as a result, Judge Murtaugh remanded their bail and sent them all back to the horror of the women's house of detention. By then, almost six months pregnant, Afeni requested that Murtaugh reverse his decision. I would like to bring to the attention of the court what I am sure the court doesn't know about, she said. And that's the situation that exists with Miss Bird and myself and for the other women that are being held in the house of detention. The boilers are broken there. There is no hot water. The conditions are not just abominable as they were before, they are inhuman. The food that the women eat is cooked in one night, like today's dinner was cooked last night and is sitting on the table waiting to be served tonight. There is no toilet paper. The facilities are not bad anymore, they are ridiculous. Women should not be put in there. The judge was skeptical about Afeni's statement and her request for improved conditions, suspecting that her interest was in making a statement for the press. The interest, Mr. Murtaugh, she replied, is in assuring the life of my child. The judge threw her back in jail. When Afeni returned to the women's prison that afternoon, they told her to undress and spread her legs so they could administer a strip search. If she refused, she'd be put in solitary confinement. She didn't hesitate to choose solitary, end quote. The phrase here is commonly, I'm sorry, but, but I'm not sorry at all, so fuck that. These people were accused of several crimes, but they had not been convicted, 
And to convict in the U.S., you need to prove it in court. So why are these women being punished? I understand the worry that the accused might run, especially when some of their cohorts have already done just that. But there are ways of ensuring that the accused remains accessible for trial that does not include punishing them in advance. I'm not saying that people should be kept in these conditions when convicted either, but the case could be made that prison is a punishment for a crime and therefore should not be pleasant. The thing I do argue is that no one should be punished before they are convicted. This is not the minority report. No one works for the pre-crime division. What if this were you? Adding insult to injury, it wasn't as if the Panther 13 ended up convicted. There's no way you can justify this by saying, well, they were all guilty anyway, so who cares? They were all acquitted. I hate everything about this. One month later, Tupac was born. Today, we would say that Afini had trust issues. We have talked about the bigotry she dealt with in North Carolina, the terror from her father, the continued shitheadery at school in New York. In addition, the reason she and the other 12 Panthers were tried in the first place was that two undercover officers had been placed in Afini's New York chapter. On top of this, instead of banding together, the Panthers on trial began to pull apart, and her husband insisted she choose a side. So all the people she thought were her family and would stand beside her were proven to not be trustworthy. Afini had high hopes from her new baby, but she also had no mechanism to give him any of it. In her probably justified paranoia, Afini put a different name on her son's birth certificate than the one she actually called him. The name on his birth certificate was Lassane Parrish Crooks, but from the beginning he was Tupac Amaru. Tupac was given the name Tupac Amaru after the Peruvian revolutionary of the same name. Afini wanted to give him a name that would be a symbol and a constant reminder of who he was and who he was responsible for. She continued to work for the rights of blacks, but sometimes her fervor was too much for a toddler and her words went clear over his head. Afini also continued to use the freely available drugs of the 1970s to get her through when her emotions and anger got the best of her. She became a partner to a man named Matulu, and the two soon welcomed a sister for Tupac. But just as quickly as they had become a family of four, Afini was back to being a single mother, this time with two children to care for. They moved a lot, about every six months. By the time Tupac was 10, Afini had moved on to freebasing cocaine. Between her ardent activism and her need for coke, there wasn't a lot left over for food or rent. By the time Tupac became a teen, he had developed a unique sense of manhood and responsibility. Quote, Tupac was always forgiving. By then, it was already natural for him to shoulder the responsibility. By then, he'd promised them that one day he was going to make enough money to take care of them. End quote. Afini was one of those people who, if all things had been equal, would have ruled the world. I'm sad just knowing this, and knowing that it didn't happen because things aren't all equal. And they certainly weren't that way in the 1970s and 80s. If you want to know more about her life, there are biographies out there, most notably the one by Jasmine Guy. Tupac and his sister Setua were not alone, as many kids who bounce around are. They had lots of family and friends, both adults and children, to ensure they had support, encouragement, and strength. When Tupac was 11, they moved with his aunt to White Plains, 
a suburb about an hour outside Manhattan. Both Afini and Auntie Jean hoped that White Plains would remove the children from the stigma of poverty and give the kids some security. Afini's distrust of almost everyone, white people in particular, was bleeding onto her children. It was a difficult stance in a family that also celebrated diversity. One positive that came out of the move was that Tupac and Sechua had a positive first-hand experience with a mostly white population. They also got to see how life could be, a life without the knuckle-scraping, mind-destroying battle that comes with poverty. An additional positive was that Tupac started tagging along with his older cousin Scott to his theater rehearsals. Tupac loved the theater. Afini was still enthralled to cocaine, and two years after they moved to White Plains, she couldn't pay the rent. After a final family argument about finances, she took her children and went back to the city. Even so, Tupac continued to go with his cousin to the theater, watching and waiting, until one day the ensemble needed someone to play the 11-year-old in A Raisin in the Sun. Scott suggested Tupac, and Tupac nailed the audition. On August 10, 1984, quote, Cousin Bill remembered the feeling of sitting in the audience that night. This was the biggest thing for our family since Afini's trial. Pac was on stage and the boy aced it. I'm sitting in the audience with my girlfriend and we were just amazed. He wasn't nervous. He wasn't making any mistakes. He didn't stutter. It was hard to believe because he didn't have long to study for this play. And he had a large part in that play. He played the kid and it was a major role. And he studied for that and went on stage in front of thousands of people and aced it. He was with all those professional actors, and all the political giants of New York were there. At that moment, I knew he was a special kid. That was the first time I said to myself, we might have someone in the family that could actually do this. End quote. Unfortunately, Afini ran out of places to go. Jean, still unhappy about how Afini had dealt with the financial responsibilities in White Plains, spoke with an aunt in Baltimore and secured a place for them there. Even if they couldn't live with them in New York, they had family and friends standing at the ready. In Baltimore, they had each other. In many ways, this move was a good one. Quote, Moving forward with parenting as her priority, she enrolled in a computer training program, and within months she was hired as a full-time administrative employee at a distinguished investment bank in Baltimore. As a data processor working the night shift, she earned minimal wages and worked a grueling schedule, but with a steady paycheck, she was finally able to relieve some of the family's financial burden. Tupac hated seeing his mother work the night shift, but through it, the three learned to rely on one another in a way they hadn't before. For years, Tupac had shared Afini with her relentless activism, and her absences had always sat well with him. I rebelled against her because she was in the movement, and we never spent time together because she was always speaking and going to colleges and everything he would recall. I always used to feel that she cared about the people more than her people. In their new lives in Baltimore, Afini was able to spend more time with Sechua and Tupac. Her focus was to strengthen their relationship and to make up for lost time. After that was over, Tupac said, referring to Afini's period of intense activism, it was more, it was more time spent with me and we were both just like, you're my mother, and she's like, you're my son? So then she was really close with me and really strict, end quote. In contrast to Afini, Valletta Wallace was born in 1953 in Jamaica. She started life in a one-room shack 
which, despite what you might think, was not quite as pitiful as it sounds. People in warm climates tend to spend their time outside, not in, so having a small building as a house was more normal than it was not. When Valletta was seven, they moved to a farm with a good deal of land. She spent the day with her father out working the fields, even in the face of her siblings teasing her about being a daddy's girl. Don't mistake the teasing for family discord. Valletta's family was loving, and she learned to work hard and to value religion during her childhood. When Valletta was 16, she moved to the city of Kingston to help her aunt during her pregnancy and subsequent new motherhood. Valletta saw a way of life that was very different from her upbringing. She got a part-time job at a travel agency where she fell in love with the U.S. through brochures available at the agency. The night her aunt went into labor, her uncle came into her room and tried it on. His young son was asleep on the other side of that room. Valletta lashed out at him and did not succeed in scratching his eyes out, even though she tried. He immediately started apologizing, but the damage had been done. She left her aunt's home that night. She also decided that it was a sign she needed to leave Jamaica. She received an invitation to attend a fashion show and used that to convince the U.S. Embassy that she was a designer looking to attend the show to compare the latest styles. She secured a 14-day visa for her efforts. She made plans to stay with a family friend in New York, and off she went. She then extended the visa and took her GED. Within 10 years, she had become a U.S. citizen. About two years after she arrived in New York, she met Selwyn Latour, also originally from Jamaica, and about 20 years older than she was. She would find out later that he was already married. They settled in Brooklyn, and when I say they, I mostly mean Valletta. From It Was All a Dream, quote, Valletta remembered the conversation as a master class of manipulation. Selwyn didn't sound excited to have a child, but he also took offense that Valletta may not want to have his child. Which one was it, Valletta wondered, end quote. May 21, 1972, Valletta gave birth to Christopher by cesarean. Selwyn popped in on her and the baby less and less frequently, until Christopher was three. After that, the visits stopped. In June 1972, Valletta moved them into the Clinton Hill neighborhood, where she would stay for the next 20 years. She decided on a career in nursing, but not long into her training, an instructor suggested she might be better suited to teaching. She switched her studies to early childhood education and was soon offered a job. Valletta did very well as a teacher, and she became good friends with another single mother who had come to New York from Guyana, Jocelyn. Jocelyn had a son who was the same age as Christopher, Sam, and Christopher and Sam grew to be like brothers. Again from Tinsley's book, It Was All a Dream, quote, By almost any metric, Christopher Wallace was a normal kid. He was bigger than everyone, even then, but it wasn't like he used his size to intimidate. During his early years, Christopher never had to want for much thanks to his mother. Valletta felt that if she could give him whatever he wanted, she could keep him off the streets for as long as possible. Action figures? Chris had them. Video games? Those too. But there was an eclectic side of young Chris. Even from a young age, I'd catch him watching stuff that was way advanced. He'd bring back information to school that we weren't really privy to, said Sam. Stuff like science fiction classic dramas. He absorbed the classics of the culture, like The Warriors things that as a kid maybe your parents might watch. I don't know if his moms would sit him down and watch stuff with her, 
but he'd bring back classic music from the 50s and 60s and be singing it in an elementary. Chris, Sam said, had this strange side of him, and he actually listened to country music as a kid. That was Valletta's influence. That was the music she grew up on and held close even in adulthood. She savored the storytelling aspect of country music. For Chris, who grew up basically on his mother's hip, Sam says, he didn't just stay in the cartoon zone. He really didn't. His interests were all over the place, even when they got the best of him. When Christopher was ten years old, Valletta sent him to bed one night. He wasn't in trouble, but as they sat on the couch watching Ten Little Indians, the 1965 film adaptation of Agatha Christie's novel, Valletta realized that her child shouldn't be watching people get murdered. Hours later, Valletta was awoken by her son, out of breath, asking if he could stay in her room that night. Christopher had gone to his room, but he hadn't exactly gone to sleep. He turned the television on in there and watched the rest of the movie, and now he couldn't sleep. Valletta valued education. That much was a given. She had enrolled in night school almost immediately after landing on American soil, and she understood how education could open up the world. And an education, too, was one of the rare gifts that, once obtained, could never be stripped away. It was hers for life. Valletta wanted the exact same for her son. The thing about Christopher was that he was naturally loyal, naturally smart, with a strong ability to retain information, too. As an elementary student at St. Peter Claver School in Brooklyn, now the Brooklyn Waldorf School, he was a model student who consistently made the honor roll. At the end of the day, Christopher loved making his mother happy, and seeing him do well in school put a huge smile on her face. Like the day he brought home his very first award, a tiny fireman with a hose in his hand given for delivering a report on fire prevention. In his heart, though, Christopher's attitude toward school, at least around his closest friends, was lackadaisical. His grades were so stellar that you'd start to think, doctor, lawyer, he could choose whatever he wanted to do, said Sam. Nearly 40 years later, that astonishment still lives in his voice. He wasn't impressed with getting good grades. It was a little confusing because he didn't act like he was aspiring to be anything, to be honest. But you would think he had the skills to be whatever he wanted, end quote. And that is the beginning of the lives of two of the most important rap musicians in the history of rap. If you enjoy the show, tell a friend. You can also like, rate, review, and subscribe. This helps the app algorithms to realize other people may be interested in this pod. You can also subscribe to the Patreon. Contact details are in the show notes. Biggie will sing you out, and I will talk at you next time on It's All Relative.
And if you don't know, now you know. Uh. 